Mr. A is based on Ayn Rand's theory of justice, on Aristotle's law of identity, his definition of man, and his view of art. Aristotle said that art is philosophically more important than history. History tells how men did act. Art shows how men could and should act. Well, welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Grant. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Mark Ditko, nephew of the great Steve Ditko. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Finally. Exactly. You know, Mark and I met uh, a couple years ago at Comic-Con, and, you know, I really enjoyed the way he describes things, the way he verbalizes things. He has a very scientific mind and very analytical mind, much like his uncle Steve. And so I think some vibe I got was like, you can get a, a vibe of what kind of being a Ditko kind of means from Mark. He's been a great ambassador to the comics world, speaking on behalf of basically the Ditko clan. So Mark, I wanted to talk a little bit first. You guys are hosting the Bottleworks event July 15th to September 11th. It's basically a Ditko inspired event celebrating the life and achievements of Steve Ditko. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that before we get started? Matt, who who kind of coordinates all the activities at the Bottleworks, he reached out to me a while back, a couple of years ago, and we've been kind of having dialogues ever since then. Of course, he's you know, from Johnstown. So he, at, at one point he realized that Steve Ditko was from Johnstown. And so he's kind of had this ambition to do something there for him. And then since he passed away, you know, that obviously that amped up a bit. So he reached out to me and said, Hey, let's do something. I connected him up. We had some conversations. I connected him up with my dad and my younger brother, Patrick. And then because they, you know, my, my younger brother, Patrick, goes back and helps my parents out for about six months out of the year. So he's in Johnstown. So anyway, Matt connected up with them. They then my dad and my brother, Patrick, were they were all on board with it. And, you know, we kind of just took it from there. And we're setting up kind of a two month events of, you know, artist inspired auction and exhibits and a lot of stuff from my uncle that we've accumulated or he sent to us. And then also a little mini Ditko Comic Con on the 11th of September, kind of wrapping the thing up. Okay, cool. So that's kind of like the grand finale of the event is on September 11. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's actually it's sort of multiple events on the Bottleworks Facebook page. There's a schedule of events, but there's it, it kind of kicks off a soft opening on the 15th, which is just kind of just getting everything, you know, in place. But then the first weekend of July is a art festival for the area. So that's kind of the first event. And that's really where the, the, the official opening is. And then they're going to be doing some comic related art classes on the weekends through August. And then Early September, Johnstown, Cambria City has always had a what they call their ethnic fest. And all the different ethnic uh, groups and stuff have foods and different activities and stuff. Well, that will be open. You know, the show will be open there to get, you know, more people. And then the Ditko-inspired art exhibit is going on through. It'll start end of, you know, mid-July, go through August. And then on the 11th of September, that's sort of culminating with the, the Ditko uh, Comic-Con and then the auction off of all the Ditko-inspired art. Nice. So now let's kind of start off with first, tell us your exact relation to Steve Ditko. Your dad is his brother, right? Basically, that's the relation. Yep. Yep. Steve Ditko is also my godfather. 
So I've known him since I was born, pretty much. <laughs> you know, obviously he was around as I when I was a kid, but then he and I kind of connected up after I moved out of Johnstown, you know, in the early 90s, 90, 91, we kind of connected up through written correspondence. I mean, I would go back every now and then and see him over Christmas or something when I was visiting, but we pretty much started uh, written correspondence around 90, 91, and then that continued for kind of the decades beyond that. So then it sounds like when you were a kid, he would come and visit like on holidays and things like that. And then as you grew up and you moved out of Johnstown, your connections were through letters. And then if in person, it'd be back at Johnstown again on a holiday or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Because he would, you know, when I was a kid, um, he always popped in at least two or three times a year. He was always there. I remember him being around obviously Christmas. And then he would come in in the summer sometimes because we would have family. We would always have a family barbecue and get together in the summer. And he was always there, you know, flipping burgers or something. So I uh, <laughs> always saw him around then. I don't know when he stopped doing the kind of the summers or the multi visits, but he always maintained his kind of holiday Christmas visit. So sometimes I would go back over Christmas and I would I'd see him then. But early on as a kid, yeah, he was always around multiple times a year. I, you know what? I didn't even really realize that he well, didn't live there because as a kid, he was around. We would have family get togethers. He'd be around. He was just there. So was he driving to Johnstown from New York then? No, he would he'd take the train in. The train. There you go. Yeah, he was always on the train. In fact, he, he wrote to me one time that he was on one of his train visits. He, you know, he on the way back, he wrote. He, you know, multiple like you know, issues of a certain character he was working on because he'd work, he'd work on the train. First, uh, so the audience knows you're an engineer by trade. You've written books on it. You've managed big projects. From what I've understood and the way I've analyzed Steve Ditko's work, he approached everything analytically. Like, for example, he would see like the Jack Kirby version of what could be Spider-Man. And then Stan kind of scrapped that and said, Steve, you come up with something. And then he analyzed what would be a Spider-Man better than anyone in history ever has before or since with webs coming out of the wrist and the, the weird body movements, the webbed costume, which is the best costume, I think, in history. It seemed to me like he analyzed what would make a proper Spider-Man and then hashed it out. And if that's correct, would you say that you share a similar analysis of the environment around you? You know what? That's just, you know, you mentioned it earlier is really to me, it's just analytical thinking. You know, you're not getting lost in some kind of, you know, emotional something. You're you're creating a fantasy. I, I actually thought about, you know, what you just said when he was creating Doctor Strange and he yeah. was creating this alternate universe. Like, what would it be like now if you you know, when when we went out to clean out his uh, studio and his apartment, I ended up uh, taking his library. And you look at what he read or what he studied and the magazines that he had subscriptions to, you know, he was taking all of that into account when he was creating something. And yeah, I would say, you know, okay, art, we know art is a, uh, I don't want to say subjective type thing, or I guess I, I would say, let me rephrase that because really art is subjective from the observer, but from the creator's perspective, I think the creator does have a thought process right. that obviously goes into, especially, 
you know, panel layouts and things like that. And then the imagery. So yeah, he was very, I'll say scientific. I mean, as a, as a kid, I know my dad told me that in the barn, he had his own little, you know, place that he had built that was kind of this secret room where he had all of his collections and skull collections and chemistry sets. And, oh, you know, cool. he was a, I would say a, a mad scientist of sort, you know? So yeah, he yeah. continued that just in his thought process. So when did you find out that he was the same Steve Ditko that co-created Spider-Man? You know, that, that probably really wasn't until I was in my, I would say maybe mid teens, because as a kid, he was just another one of my uncles, you know, my, right. my fun uncles that we would goof around with. And, you know, he would, you know, play, he would goof around and wrestle with us. And as I got older, he taught us how to throw knives and, and hatchets and just, you know, just playful type stuff. But early on as a kid, there were always comics around the house. And, you know, at some point I probably need to ask my dad, like, where did those come from? Because they just appeared. I'm a kid. I'm four years old. I don't, I don't know where this stuff just appears from. I don't know if, if my uncle was sending it, you know, to the family. I don't, I, I have to be- not believe that my dad was buying it. I think my uncle probably was sending it to, to everyone, but they just appeared around the house. So I started reading Conga is that was kind of my earliest recollection of reading comics. And and what year would you say you started reading comics? I probably remember Conga around the 63, 64 oh, okay. uh-huh. era, you know, 60, maybe 65 or so. Right. So I'm reading Conga and I'm, I'm loving Conga as a kid, you know, I, it was just a great storyline. It was very upbeat. It was fun playful, but then my uncle would come in. It's I remember, you know, some Christmases, my older brother, who was two years older than me, he would draw. He was always sketching and drawing stuff. Although we all we all drew, but he was we won kind of, he was older. He's took it, you know, he took that first leap into there. And I remember that he would show my uncle, and my uncle would give him pointers. He would put a piece of tracing paper over it and kind of comment on it and stuff. But when I found out that he could draw, I would say, Uncle Steve, can you draw me a gorilla? Because I love Conga. So I'd say, hey, can you draw me a gorilla? And he'd just whip out this gorilla and be like, man, it's, it was so fun. So I, I was like, man, can you draw? I had no idea he was drawing the comics that I was reading. <laughs> I had no idea. So it really wasn't until, I don't know when, I don't, I don't know when the cat got out of the bag, but it wasn't something that the family talked about. My dad didn't talk about it. My aunts and uncles didn't talk about it. When my uncle came, when Uncle Steve came home, it wasn't like, oh, here's what I'm working on now. Look at yeah. me. It wasn't like that. So it probably wasn't until I was maybe 14, 15 or something that I realized what he had created. Ah, that's great. What yeah. a cool revelation too, huh? Yeah, I know. It was just like, whoa, Uncle Steve. He rocked, man. Why do you think he wasn't, you know, telling everybody that? Do, was he just keeping stuff close? Is that is that something in the mind of his generation and being a Ditko of that generation that they just didn't verbalize their achievements so much? What was the source of his, let's say, aversion to soaking in the limelight on his achievement with 
Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. No, I think you kind of hit on it sort of multiple layers is my and this is just my opinion, you know, at some point because I don't I don't know why he did what he did really other than, you know, I know I know what we wrote together, I know what we talked about and a lot of the stuff I kind of have to extrapolate from the family, you know, because hey, the kids are are similar. My dad is you know, obviously has similar characteristic as my uncle and my aunts and their, and even my grandparents, you know, his parents, they were just, you know, I want to say with that uh, kind of immigrant mentality, you know, first, second generation Americans, they, in fact, you know, Zach, Zach Cruz, you know, his book, Mysterious Traveler, he mentions a book in there and I talk about it all the time. Um, of like, I wish I could remember the name of it from, from bread with butter or with bread and butter, the history of the immigrants in Johnstown. And it starts, it talks about their attitudes and how education was not the highest priority. It was a priority, but doing something, having a good work ethic and buckling down and doing a job was actually the highest priority because look, you're an immigrant, you got to get paid. You know, you just got to have that work ethic. So he had that, my my parents have that. My aunts and uncles, all of them. I saw that in my family, which was really probably something that was an Im- just a general immigrant mentality. But I'd say uh, not everybody could be successful because they have to have a certain talent. They have to have a certain intelligence and mindset. And you know what? I'll just say it. My my grandfather, you know, on uh, just on my mom's side, there was grandma and grandpa. On my dad's side, it was Pop, uh, Poppy and Bubba. So yeah. that was how we kind of referred to them. So, you know, they they were, I'll say they were geniuses, learning the language themselves, learning their own skill set, become a master carpenter, you know, by himself and just learning and learning. They were sponges and they had the intelligence to do that. So I think that that work ethic is what I saw in my uncle, you know, yeah. that that he had that capability to just put his mind to something that was a real passion and just, and just commit and be able to really be successful. So I know that there are basically two layers to every question about Steve Ditko to you, right? There is what you learned from him about that particular topic. And then there's also then the subjective of your impression of why something could be. And I yep. know that that interplay exists anytime anyone asks you about your uncle. But I wanted to ask you a couple of things. Was he religious or, or atheist or agnostic? No, well, I would say that he, of course, he was born, you know, we're in a religion, we're Byzantine Catholic. So uh-huh. we were born in, in that. But no, that wasn't something that he really followed. You know, he he believed that this was, uh, you know, one lifetime and you, you know, when it was done, it was done and make the best of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was kind of his his attitude. Did he ever mention any, you know, childhood comics influences? It said that he loved Jerry Robinson's Batman. Yep. Will Eisner's spirit. And yep. then he also Mort Meskin had made an impression on him when he worked under him at the Simon Kirby studio, did those discussions ever come up about his childhood comic collection and, and kind of a, as a budding comic artist ever? Well, the only thing that I have are kind of like the stories that my dad, you know, would have told me, you know, how he was, you know, well, 
his dad, Poppy, was just a fanatical, you know, comic industry nut. He loved reading comics. Oh, My dad okay. said he his vacations when he would he would when Poppy would take a vacation, his vacation was getting a collection of comics, sitting down in his favorite chair and reading comics. Yeah, so that's right. There's a third route of information here is what your dad also told you too. So that's yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. So so basically then their dad was a big comic person. Was Huge. it like comic strips or books or what was it? Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it was if they're comic books, comic books, otherwise he's reading the strips out of the paper. You know, so yeah, my, you know, Michael Steve, they were always, you know, getting up, getting the latest comics and getting the paper so that so that their dad could read those comics. Yeah. He just he loved them. Somebody made a comment about, in fact, I think it was, oh, I know what it was. I read it in Lenny's play, Ditko play that he yeah. put together. He sent me this, the the play, the whole script of that before they did it the first time. So I, I like read through it and it was so painful because, you know, it wasn't truth. You know, it wasn't accurate. He's, he's, he was, and, and I didn't get it. You know, I, I just like apologize to Lenny. I gave him so much crap for you know, say, oh, you can't say this. You can't say that. That's not true. Because he's he's putting my uncle into, you know, the role of Peter Parker because it's a play. I didn't, you know, and it, once I once it clicked, it was like, oh, this is actually for entertainment. It was like, OK, I get it. People make that comparison to him and Peter Parker all the time. But the Ditko family does not feel that that's accurate. Right. I don't know what anybody else really thinks you know, in the family, I have my own opinion. Mm-hmm. And to me, Peter Parker was just an amalgam of that attitude because, you know, just to kind of take that little tangent there on that comment, you know, I was looking at some books. I think Craig Yo, there was one book in Craig Yo, and then that he did, and then Ditko Unleashed. There were some pictures of supposedly, you know, Steve Ditko in the 44 year book. He graduated in 45. But there were these pictures that were supposed to be in a 44 year book of him. And I posted on Facebook and I did some research like, no, that's actually not him. And that was so controversial. But what I did is I went through everybody in the 45 year book where he he was in there. And I found like it must have been eight or 10 people that all looked like Peter Parker. They all looked the same. (laughs) They all had the slick back hair. They had round glasses. They were all kind of that same imagery. So I, and I have this strip and something I should post is like, in fact, I think I did on, on Facebook, which one is Peter Parker? You know, they all look like him. (laughs) Yeah. So here's an amalgam of that, of that era, basically. Yeah, exactly. That was just like, he was, he was just having a, like what would, like you said, he, he had a, a, a task and he's looking at all the imagery and all the kind of the creativeness is how would a, a geeky person really look and round glasses and, you know, skinny and scrawny and how would he be perceived? So, yeah, I, I personally, you know, he may have pulled elements from his own past, but he wasn't saying, Oh, I'm writing myself into this character. No, he was just creating a brand new character, you know, Peter Parker. Yeah, that's cool. And I love that. You're shedding light on on stuff like this. So then, did any discussions ever come up about his time at Charlton, Joe Gill, any of the people there? Did any, has any of that ever come up? Oh, I think you know, yeah. What little fragments? In fact, I I really need to periodically go and reread through all of our letters 
because that's one thing that he really, first of all, he loved working with Joe Gill. You know, he really did. And he loved working at Charlton. And I think that's been noted many times, but I also noticed that in writing him because it was about the level of freedom that he had. You know, he loved that ability to have sort of uninhibited creative, uh, you know, outlet that he was able to do whatever he felt was right. And he didn't feel, you know, encumbered by, you know, he wrote to me about how sometimes editors just would just drive him crazy and, you know, colorists would get it wrong. You know, he would do color samples of different things and they wouldn't use them. So, you know, that, I mean, he was a big proponent of the division of labor. He did his role. He let the others do their role. And he he was strong enough as an individual to just go, okay, look, this is just the the mechanism, the machinery, the way it works. Do I agree with it? No. But you know what? I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm going to the, I I got more work to do. So he would just sort of let that go, but didn't necessarily agree with it, you know? Mm-hmm. What what aspect of Joe Gill do you think he liked? Was it that Joe Gill was just a professional and he pumped out a script and that was it? What what what, what do you think that was? I, I I can't really come up with anything specific other than I think just naturally what he what my uncle liked was somebody who he could really communicate with. He oh, cool. he could say something. He could work with them. They they there was obviously a meeting just a meeting of the minds. Oh, that's you know? cool. So they actually had inner interplay with each other. I didn't know that. You know, there obviously there was there was a dynamic there. There was something that clicked, you know, and yeah. I'll just kind of go back to like at, at, at the end of the Marvel days, there was something that was not clicking with with Stan and him. And he was one that liked a positive environment. I see uh, that was there was a creative environment. He wasn't stifled. So, you know, I think he had that at Charlton. He liked that. He had that with Joe Gill. And that's cool to know because it, it actually helps understand, you know, his essay on why he left Spider-Man saying that there's a breakdown in communication yep. and he just didn't feel like being there anymore. And that's an interesting, that's cool to put those two next to each other, those situations. So this is another thing we've spoken on the phone about before, but he had a couple of flare-ups from tuberculosis, one kind of in the later 50s and another one in the later 60s. And I think during these times, he he would leave New York, come back to Jonestown. Did your family ever talk about that? And how psychologically impactful do you think tuberculosis really was to him? Was it not really? What's your take? Okay. And, and this is my take is that I, I didn't necessarily, I personally didn't witness anything. I didn't see him change in any way from what I knew to, you know, before and after these episodes. Although the first one that happened, I wasn't even born yet. You know, right. I was in the, in the mid fifties, but I, I asked my dad about that. And I said, okay, when he, when he got really sick and, and Bubba, you know, his mom actually had to come and get him because he was really sick that when he got back there, I, I, I my dad was, this was in the, I guess the mid fifties, my dad would have been late teens, late end of high school or later years of high school. I said, do you remember you know, him on his deathbed, you know, in some traumatic, you know, physical condition. And he said, no, no, I don't really remember that. So that wasn't something that, that he, that was visibly just traumatizing from my dad's perspective. So he didn't see that. I see. And that they felt he was pretty much the same guy before and after 
these flare-ups? You know, I never really asked them that, but I never got, you know, that never came up in a conversation that, oh yeah, he really changed after that. You know, yeah. that we didn't, didn't see any, I didn't hear any of that. Yeah. And you were actually there during the second one. That's cool. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and and during that time, you didn't feel any change in body language from him or anything like that, really. No, no, no. And you know what? Even even beyond that is later when we would write, and when we we would meet and we would talk. He was just Uncle Steve. I didn't I didn't see him just sort of having some sort of shifted point skewed point of view on certain topics or or interaction, you know because of some experience that he had. I didn't see anything like that. Right. It wasn't like he was withdraw- more withdrawn, you know? I didn't, yeah. didn't see anything like that. Yeah, it's not like uh, Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. He was never the same yeah. after that one Right, day. It and like it was that. very observable. Yeah. yeah, 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 I get that. So now, did he ever discuss with you, I see you have the John Galt t-shirt on, which is awesome. <laughs> did he ever discuss his discovery of Ayn Rand and how that changed his perception of things or if it did? If you really get down to what our relationship was, is initially, okay, initially uh, he was just a fun uncle and I treated him and had experiences like with all my uncles. My uncles would, some of them would take us fishing, you know, somebody used to show magic tricks every time they would come over. There was some interaction with the kids and the the uncles. And Uncle Steve was the fun uncle who was a really good artist, you know. So we kind of had that sort of relationship. But then it it sort of changed when I was in my late teens. And I I remember being at the kitchen table and he was sitting there, it was just me and him. And I'm I'm like long hair, braids, hippie, no, just like a real throwback from the 60s and just complaining about, I think it was my first or second year of college. And I'm just complaining about war, some worldwide, just, you know, distasteful situation. And he said, I mean, we're just chatting about stuff. And he said, so what are you, what are you doing about it? Like, what are you doing about that? And I'm like, nothing. (laughs) <laughs> like what, I'm just a kid, you know, I'm just somebody just, it shouldn't be, you know? And he said, you don't, you don't have any right to complain about it. He said, if you're not doing something about it, then you have no right to really complain about it. And basically said, you know, shut up, you know, you, you don't know what you're talking about and you know, you're just going to be a whiner over there. So I think at that point it started to my relationship with him shifted into being more of a guru or a philosophical, you know, guru of sorts. So when we would write back and forth together, it was, it was sort of thematic where we would, we would up, I would update him on what I was doing in the business. And then we would, I would update him with some family activity that's happening with, you know, the kids or the brothers or sisters or, you know, my dad and then it would go into sort of a philosophical conversation about something that's happening in the world or something that's happening in my life or something. And it would be a philosophical thing. And he would always come back with, you know, an answer to each. And then sometimes and then it would be a little industry section, you know, hey, on the creeper, you know, did who came up with this or that? Or what did you mean, you know, when you did that? So because at the same time, now I'm re-engaging myself into his his comics. So yeah. I'm reading those and asking him questions. But 
then he would respond. And on the philosophical side, that was probably the more the meat of our dialogue. But yeah. he would then send me things. He would send me, you know, he says, have, you know, have you ever read De Bono? You know, here's uh, and he would then send me books. So I have, you know, through the 90s, he was always sending me stuff out of his own library, which I've now kind of shifted back. This is his library back here. Oh, that's great. Uh, part of it. And then the other part is here. But you know, things like like that purple Dr. Strange masterwork stuff. He probably got that from Marvel and he just sent it to me, you know, because he knew I was interested. But he would send me a lot of philosophical books. And yeah, at some point, Ayn Rand came up. I I never really pursued with him like, oh, when did you start reading this? Because it was more of like a dialogue about the present and saying, hey, you know what? Have you ever read this? This is actually a really good book. And he started sending me stuff probably when I was, I remember back in Johnstown, I think I was probably complaining about something. He ended up giving me some tapes, some cassette tapes that he had been listening to and said, you should listen to this. So all along, you know, we didn't get a, it wasn't, it wasn't like a a, uh, discussion about his own, how his own interest developed, or, you know, it wasn't, I'm not interviewing him. It's just, we're having a conversation and someone said, Hey, have you ever read this book? And here, here's, and and that's, that's, that's actually like connecting as human beings is what, is what that is. Right. Right. Yeah. I wasn't doing an interview. I wasn't doing a documentary. There's this myth, I think, and tell me if it is a myth. That he was this normal social person, and then when he read Ayn Rand, he became a hermit. It, it, to me, and I may be wrong, but I, correct me, please, if that's the case. Did he always just have a certain analysis and skepticism of the world about him, and that it was more of a healthy digestion of what's going on around him, and that was pretty much the same guy before and after Ayn Rand? Or did he really just get withdrawn after reading Ayn Rand? Have you ever have you ever read a book that really shifted your perspective on things? Because I know that I have. I mean, I've read stuff because I I am a a studier of life. Yeah, okay, you know, I am one of those guys that that reads and I've studied the religions of the world, and you know, I I do that because I'm just interested. You know, I'm yeah, a uh-huh. I'm a curious, and I think he was similar in that way. And sometimes when you read something, it aligns with your own philosophy and you you go, go. oh, wow, you know what? Yes, that's actually accurate. I could believe that. So I think in my opinion, it wasn't some, you know, light switch, you know, bulb that just popped on when he read, you know, and ran because he had, I think for him and I, I would say, and I, maybe he even wrote me, I'm not sure where I got this. I, I, I just read, I read so much. And now since I'm connected to, you know, all these people, I've read just so much information, articles about them. It's kind of a blur sometimes, you know, where, what I got directly from him. That's why I need to reread his letters. At one point he said, he's not really a spokesman for objectivism. He's an Aristotelian, you know, it was a bit, he, was, he always go back to Aristotle, you know, to him, to him, that is what made sense. That's what clicked. I think for him, and then things aligned with that. And, you know, so to me, I didn't ever, I don't believe that there was some, you know, aha moment where all of a sudden he became a different person. And this whole idea of him being turning into a cranky recluse or something is just absolutely absurd, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, I think fandom, they either 
worship or or they'll get behind some weird negative sentiment or then they'll get hyperly positive or it'll be different camps. It gets confusing, you know, for people that just kind of try to casually figure it out. And sometimes a lot of misstatements become a truth in a group of people. And that's why it's so important uh, for you and your family to do what, what you've been doing. Well, well, let me, I'll just, I'll, I'll kind of add to that is I think a lot of that comes from people who don't actually know him, who don't, you know, you talk to Mort Todd and you say, Mort, what do you, th- do you think he was a strange recluse that hated people? It's like, no, you know, people who really knew him, Craig Yo, and the, you know, anybody else that really connected with him from the early days to the later days, you know, Paul Levitz, all those guys. They're they're gonna they're they know him as a person. They know him as an individual, and I think a lot of that stuff, you know, it 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 comes from someone who actually didn't know him, and they latch on to some fragment of something because they wrote a letter or he, he saw they saw a letter that came back and he was curt, you know, with someone, you know, and, and then they just. That's that's enough for to rib it in. Oh, he was a cranky old yeah. recluse. It was just like right. you don't really you didn't really even know him. You didn't know him. First, would he consider himself a libertarian if he had did he have a voter registration? I mean, did he click something there? Did he talk about politics? Would he vote? Was he a voter? I I talked to him about I asked him one year, I think it was two th- in fact, you know, let me just open. I I got this document and I grabbed a few snippets out of and he he i did ask him about voting i kind of want to try not to continue to uh you know just paraphrase so it was december 2004 so whatever the 2004 election was i asked him if he had voted and he said no i didn't vote no candidate is for our constitutional republic for inalienable individual and property rights I didn't hear any political candidate mention them as a value to be protected. So he didn't vote. So I think that's just uh, an illustration of what his attitude was. Yes. So, you know, he was for the constitutional Republic. Yeah. He was for the constitution. He was for the, you know, founding fathers and the framers. And he says, you know, he didn't see that. So no, he's not going to vote for anybody because, you know, no, he doesn't want to eat either mule meat or dog meat. It's like, no, I don't want any, I won't eat. I won't eat. And did you ever see him get excited about something about music? What kind of music did he enjoy? What, what, did he digest pop culture that way? I think he was more old school because when we went into his studio, he had, I'm not sure if it was his studio or if it was in his apartment. I, I think it was in his studio. He had a keyboard and he had sheet music and he had obviously tapes the music that he would listen to, but it was all old school stuff, you know, but he was, he was teaching himself the keyboard. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. So he was actually all about learning to do stuff. That's cool. Yep. yep. He was expanding his skill sets of, you know, capabilities and abilities of just life. So yeah, he liked music. I mean, he had a, he had a, a radio that, I mean, he probably listened to and he had a, it was a, I think it was a CD player and he had music. My dad has it now, but the music, yeah, it was it was more of the old school stuff. When you say old school, do you mean like fifties? Uh, yeah, yeah, nineteen fifty stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I have I have Lenny asked me, you know, because he wanted to pay, play some background music in the his Ditko play. 
So I remember talking to my dad and asking him what music he had that we had take we that we had taken from this uh, studio. So I have a list of that somewhere. I can't think of it off the top of my head. You know, some of those artists are are just before my era. Did he date or have a girlfriend or ever talk about anything like that? Well, obviously not to me. And it was funny because I met when I was going to comic conventions in the early 90s, I would always see. I mean, it was uh, OK. I, I I did what my uncle hated. I I would tell people who I am so that I could go back and see Jack Kirby and Dr. Stanley and, you know, see these guys. So I, I went and was talking with Jack Kirby one time and he says, so, you know, how how is your uncle? You know, did he ever get a girlfriend? <laughs> So he was just kind of joking along those lines, but not, not that I know of. Although when I talked to my mom, my mom said there was a time when he was coming back that there was a girl that he liked that liked him back in Johnstown. So when he would come and visit, you know, they would, there was definitely a, a connection there, but yeah, but nothing ever really developed from it because he was in, you know, he was in New York and she was in Johnstown. So I don't know. Wh- I don't know whatever happened after that, or what might have happened in New York, but there was definitely a, a connection in Johnstown with, in Johnstown, with a girl that just that never time. developed. It never developed. Yeah, he's known for his unflinching principles, and and he's you know appreciated for that and valued for that. Could that have in any way made it difficult to compromise for a relationship? You think, or is that just is that too much conjecture to try to go for? I think probably the best person to really answer that is somebody who chose not to get married. And what was the reasoning behind that? Because I think initially it was just a natural thing where he was interested and he developed, tried these developed connections, but distance just didn't make it work. Or, you know, there's always the story about him, you know, asking, uh, who is the secretary for Marvel Hello Steinberg? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Asking her if she would go out, but she said no. So I'm sure that that whole, you know, ritualistic kind of connecting up or trying to connect up happen. But I think about my brother, Patrick, my younger brother, Patrick, he's not married, you know, he's dated and he's gone through his, like, I'm not interested. I'm interested. So he's not married. And he says he probably won't get married. So, you know, it's almost like my brother, Patrick, could probably have a better assessment of why wouldn't you do that? But I, <laughs> but I think at some point, some people don't get married. You know, why do so I know I have friends that don't have kids? I was like, wow, OK, that's is that unusual? Oh, maybe, you know, but that's just a choice. So I think at some point, you know, he decided, hey, look, I'm committing, you know, to my craft and this is where I'm dedicating my energy. He probably yeah. did, you know, and I would suspect just as a normal guy, he he have tried to develop that. It just didn't, it just the right pieces weren't there. Although I'll I'll throw in another just sort of wild tangent here is it very it could be that he saw relationships not go so well. And and maybe that sort of colored things like, you know, with Eric Stanton, you know, that whole thing. You know, yes, I was going to ask you about him. Yes. Yeah. I have my own assessment that I think his relationship with Eric Stanton, he saw his wife just did not go his first wife, not go so well and really hated what he did. And, but he saw my uncle obviously clearly saw the talent that Eric had and they, they just connected, you know, so it could be that he was maybe colored by that. 
That's interesting. What, what What's your impression of him and Eric Stanton? They shared a studio together for like 10 years, I think. Yep. Eric would have all these pretty girls and garter belts come on over and hang out and stuff. What Were they kind of like two buddies connecting at the right age and with similar skill sets? What's your impression of them being buddies like that? Oh, that's exactly what it is. It's two people with such a common reality of just art and an admiration for each other. You know, they were both sort of second generation-ish Americans. He was, you know, Eric was from, you know, the the you know Eastern Europe block, just like you know, yeah. we were the Ditkos. They they connected, they were able to talk, they played off of each other, you know, they probably taught each other things. They probably, we know, come on, they helped each other on stuff, you know, clearly. They were wingmen together too, Absolutely. Probably. So uh, what, what's that, two wild and crazy guys? Yeah, you know what? Yes, <laughs> I think that's kind of the thing, you know, and then I have kind of my own spin of, look, you look look what his, his studio mate was. You think he's going to go back to his mom, at, you know, back in Johnstown and start promoting what he's working on these days with his buddy? Yeah. You know, so I think that tended to him go, you know what? I should probably just not talk about this right now because <laughs> that was really, I mean, that stuff that Eric was doing was really taboo in that era. Kind of adult oriented stuff. Yeah. The Eric Stanton reprints are, are awesome to look at. Yeah, I know. I mean, so they obviously connected at an artistic level and also at a sort of a human relationship level. So yeah, hey, they stayed together for 10 years. Clearly there was something there magnetic, you know, that kept them together. But going back to what we talked about is I think that that potentially could have colored his opinion of getting married, you know, and then he wasn't, you know, my uncle, from what I heard, he wasn't so happy when Eric ended up getting married the second time. Right. I heard that that was the cause of their split, actually. Uh, you know, I, di I didn't know that or didn't hear it, but I think it was probably in that book, Eric Stanton book that maybe that kind of came out. I don't know where that really was, but clearly there was something that held them together for that many years. Uh, and there was a common thread. So uh, again, going back to, you know, his decision to maybe not get married and just keep his head down to the grindstone and do what he loved, you know, it could be that Eric had, you know, some influence in there or some, something that threw his, that two cents in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I remember, I think we've spoken on the phone once you'd mentioned that his relationship with Eric Stanton influenced the construction of Peter Parker, Spider-Man. What, what was your spin on that? Do you, do you remember? I think we talked about it sometime. Oh, oh yeah, right. Because, you know, that's where everybody says, oh, you know, Steve Ditko is Peter Parker. And then they say Eric Stanton is the human torch, but maybe that's not correct, huh? Uh, you know what? My spin is that I think he took a lot of Eric's life because Eric was very similar to my uncle. But he took a lot of some of Eric's life, and that was illustrating Peter Parker, you know, like the, the whole Aunt May, you know, or whatever. That was, I mean, Eric Stanton, I think he had an Aunt May, yeah. you know, that used to watch him. So I, I think he took a lot of influence from Eric Stanton when he was, you know, building Peter Parker. I remember on that panel you did with Jackie and uh, Matt Dumford. John. Someone had asked, hey, did he ever speak about working with Stan and what that was like or his impression of Stan? And you had said that, you know, he never really talked about that. Is that something that you asked or just never came up? Obviously, I've just dove in head first into, you know, his 
his life a little bit more, so to speak, beyond what I knew from our letters and yeah. my family connection. I wish, you know, I could go back in time to the through the 90s and 2000s and ask him all these burning questions that are on other people's minds or that I hadn't ever considered before. Because, no, I never asked him about Stan because I didn't think about it. And yeah, that yeah. was really it. So some of that stuff never came up, not because, oh, I asked him, but he avoided the question. No, you know, I asked him about Spider-Man or Doctor Strange and anything that I came, that came to mind as a personal interest that I was wondering about. I asked him and he answered. Yeah. So it, it was just that I didn't think about this stuff. Yeah, I know. And also it's like, who's your uncle? You know, there's a routine of just being uncle and nephew also as well. And sometimes, you know, we don't get out of that. And you know what? No, it wasn't even that. It wasn't like, oh, this is taboo. You know, I have to stay away from this. I didn't have, look, I did a lot of stupid shit with him. I said a lot of stupid stuff. You know, perfect example. You know, I knew that he didn't really like signing stuff. So what, what do I do when he sends me a box of comics? You know, he sends me Spider-Man 5 through 38. <laughs> what do yeah. I do? Send them back. And for say, him to sign it. Could you sign these for me? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, dude, like that was really stupid and arrogant. And but I did it. So I, I can't claim to have been the smartest nephew in some of those instances. So it wasn't like I was holding back. You know, luckily he probably maybe cut me a little more slack than usual because I'm the nephew. But yeah, he said on those things you're, that I'm lucky he didn't just throw them in the trash. Uh, Did he sign them? No, but he sent them back. At least he <laughs> sent them back. But yeah, then yeah. after that, he had he did the comic of his own, The Safest Place. Yeah. And he sent me a whole bunch of signed copies. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That was what he was proud of at that time. Yeah. But then I did go back and see him. I can't remember when. And I took some Spider-Man comics. I had a couple, a couple comics, a 38 and a couple others that I took back and uh, Creeper. I had a, I had a, just a collection of comics. And when I went back to Johnson one time, he signed them for me. So he did sign sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's your impression of his attitude toward Jack Kirby as a creator? They, they weren't really close friends, right? But they worked at the same place around the same time. Was that the full extent of it? Were they mainly acquaintances with respect for each other? What, what's your yeah. impression of that? Yeah, I think that was that's all that it was. They weren't buddies. They didn't hang around. You know, they were just acquaintances. They clearly knew of each other and they were just kind of say, you know, two ships passing in the night on certain, certain certain comics because they didn't necessarily collaborate all that much. You know, yeah, he inked Jack's work on, you know, the covers and stuff like that. But they he, I never really talked to him about. That. I mean, I wrote to him when I had met Jack and we Jack and I had talked and I, I wrote him. I can't really recall what the response was on that, but it wasn't something that they were, oh, they were buddies connected at the hip. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. like that. As far as like some of his post-Marvel characters, you know, you can see some elements of objectivism within Blue Beetle and most certainly the question in Mr. A. Just from your impression of it, is that probably the direction he was going to take Spider-Man? Or did he? do you think he looked at those characters as, these are a different concept, and I'm going to do this with them? This is really covered in Zach's book, you know, Mysterious Traveler, that I think there was a, an evolution going on with the way he created characters. 
So I think to me, Spider-Man, you know, would have evolved in that direction to where, you know, early on, in fact, you know, my spin on, oh, he created this Peter Parker flawed character. He didn't build these flaws into him and expect them, in my opinion, to be maintained. Right. He he really, the reality is all of a sudden you have superpowers and you're going, whoa, what? You know, and then you're trying to get your head wrapped around that until you figure out where you're at and you're you're in this own look. It's just a microcosmic, you know, life that you're learning. Like, how do I function now with this? And then eventually you start to sort it out. You start to have more experiences and you start to just get more of a focus. And little by little you evolve. So I think Spider-Man would have gone that way. It was because he was a 15 year old. That's uh, right. That, that he had those flaws and that you would expect it. That you would expect it. And then when he lifted that large weight in that later issue, overcoming a lot of his mental anxieties, that was a a metaphor of a growth moment where he was going to achieve a more final, more adult worldview of what he would think would be more appropriate. And and that's why I think a lot of people feel that when he left, you know, it wasn't really the Spider-Man that was intended, at least from his perspective anymore, that it became more of a, a an anxious mascot for, for Marvel Comics. Yeah. I mean, look, it, he was a storyteller. So, and he mapped and plotted those things out. He knew where he wanted to go with that because it's almost like, okay, Her- Harry Potter, how many volumes is that? Do you think it just kind of made it up as you went, you know, the author? Right. I think there was a master plan, you know, yeah, there's probably an A to Z on this. Exactly. So I think that's, you know, he, ha- he saw where it was going to evolve. He just, you know, jumped ship before he could, you know, complete that evolution. So he goes and now he's doing Blue Beetle and it is sort of an extension of that. I mean, the artwork of Blue Beetle to me is just mind blowing. It's very, you know, very Spider-Man ish kind of, you know, but that's what he's known for that action, you know, integrating that action into static panels. So I think I think it was all a, an evolution and Spider-Man Peter Parker would have eventually kind of gotten there. And that and that's why I think later on he was like, "Okay, you know what? I'm I'm done with that. I could actually set that aside because it's not going where I would have taken it. So I'm not going to sit here and whine about it. I'm going to move on to my next character and I'm going to do what I'm going to do." A lot of people don't put these two characters together knowing what you know of your uncle and your discussions and just studying the guy as well, the concept of the chameleon who's faceless. And then the question and Mr. A in Charlton, he did a chameleon type character before the Marvel one. And then even later he did a character that was kind of similar. What do you think it is about the faceless character that seemed to appeal to his uh, artistic sensibilities? You know what? I've never thought about that. And that's something to where I think if I'm, say, deficient in kind of my knowledge is all of his characters and, you know, you know, their their personalities and all that stuff. I mean, I know the main main characters, but it wasn't something I am by no means a comic historian. You know, sure, I, don't, sure. I mean, I, I watch your show and it's like you guys talk about stuff and just like, whoa, that is like over my head. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea of any of that stuff. So I, I don't, I don't know. I think it was just, you know, my 
my thoughts on it now is that it was just a way to make that imagery stand out. Like a vehicle, more like a storytelling vehicle, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some people will say that the question is him, just like some people want to say Peter Parker is him. But is the question more him or or is that another construct that he analyzed and put together, you think? I don't think any of those things are him. Right. He wrote to me at one point and he, he said that he thinks comics should have evolved to be more of an educational medium. Mm. So I think all he was doing is telling a story. Yeah, that's cool. And he's trying to get a moral across. Yeah, teach a lesson of some kind. Exactly. And that's to me, that's a lot of that stuff he's doing. He's just trying to do it in what he sees as an entertaining way of trying to get some some life, whether it's ethics or morality or integrity, some point across and getting them to try to look at something in a medium that maybe they not wouldn't otherwise have seen. So I, I don't, I don't think he was trying to tell his life story or create a, a image of himself. He was yeah. just, and it was, you know, even like call Mr. A, you know, the, the black and white, he says, everything is, you know, black and white, you know, people go, Oh, that's harsh. It's hard. You know, it's ridiculous. That's, you know, you can't have that attitude. Well, you know what? Maybe it can't be applied across the boards, but in some instances, you know, he's just telling, he's getting you to process real life through maybe a different lens. Yeah. Because cool. if you take a look at something like it, to me, and in fact, I'll, I'll just make a, a strange analogy. My dad, my dad has this saying sometimes, which I don't really agree with, but he says it, you know, all things in moderation, you know, and I get what he's saying. And, and in a, in a, in a certain frame that actually makes sense, you know, don't, overdue, don't, don't eat four gallons of ice cream every single night. You know, that's not going to be a good thing. So all things in moderation. And so my uncle had this sort of, okay, black and white, but that, that doesn't mean everywhere because it's like, I could tell my dad, you know, I only did a little bit of heroin tonight. You know, it's like, I didn't, (laughs) it was just, look, I'm, I'm moderating it. You know, I only do so much a week. It's like, no, to me, that is a black and white. No, don't do that. So my uncle in this sort of black and white mentality could say, look, you know, do you think it's okay to just steal? Oh, I don't know. Maybe just pads of paper, you know, because look, it's not like you're stealing like bills, you know, or not, you're not stealing, you're not taking a computer Right, you know, right. or something. You're just taking some paper. What's the what's the harm in or, that? Or take a pen from the bank with you home. Yeah, why not? I mean, come on. It's you don't mean black and white. It's like no, actually, no. That stealing, like stealing, bad. Like that's that's it. Stay on the white side of that. Yeah, there are areas of life where there's no gray. And and to me, when I see when I read Mister, I love Mister A, and but I read him differently than anybody else would read him. To me, it's just all those things that people believe that there's an acceptability in a gray, when in reality, you actually even know that there is no gray in that area. And you should be on the white side, you know, and live in that sort of straight and narrow. Hey, I only cheated once in my marriage. I mean, it was only once. Come on. Cut me some slack. No, there's a black and white there. And I think it does apply. Yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. 
Now, did he ever talk about Wally Wood? Did that ever come up? Were, were they friends? Do you know about that? You know what? I think uh, I I can't recall any specific, and I don't have any kind of you know notes that I could refer to right now about yeah, Wally yeah. Wood. But my my recollection of that is they were buds. They they the talk about the, it's it was a it was almost an Eric Stanton kind of relationship in terms of he really admired Wally Wood. Mm. You know, it's unfortunate that Wally Wood, you know, had, you know, problems drinking and where his life went. But that I think there was an absolute connection with him and Wally Wood. He really admired his skill set. Mm. There was a there was definitely a connection that he mm had you know with wally wood in my hmm. opinion that's cool yeah because it, it it sounds like there's more of a connection between ditko and wood than ditko and kirby actually oh no doubt no doubt i mean look, just look at you know witsend yeah that's right you know that's right that would take a connection there yes yeah and he and and, and wally wood even says like look no you're put, i'm putting this in just the way you want it this is this is you in fact he he got little, I thought there was some little tension there when all of a sudden Wally Wood was kind of backed away a little bit and someone else didn't want to put, you know, in just what he put, what my uncle had created. So he had that relationship with Wally Wood. And I think Wally Wood had a mutual respect back. I was just like, look, this is his, this is a platform. I'm letting him take it. I know that when Wally left and was doing the uh, tower comics. Ditko was doing work with that. They did some jungle gym together. They did quite a bit of things that were not considered necessarily mainstream, but they had that connection. And mm -hmm. that's cool to hear that confirmed on, on your end too, that there was a good emotion there between the two. Yeah. Now you had mentioned earlier that you had asked him about the creeper and there are other characters for DC comics when he went to DC, like Hawk and Dove. Mm -hmm. What did he tell you about those characters or what has come up? I have a couple snippets that I pulled out of my letters, but when I was asking him about those things, I mean, I could just read some of this. Yeah. He said, and this was uh, in 2005, November of 2005 that he wrote me this. He said, yeah, the creeper. He said, yes, the creeper's colors were mine. His costume was put to, was a put together affair to get into the costume party. So it was thrown together a thrown together disguise, which made it different in not being a chosen costume for a hero's career like the Batman or Superman. Offbeat ideas like with the Creeper costume can lead to lead or have led to other offbeat ideas. One just has to be mentally open, not censoring, considering what does pop up. And some never originally thought ideas will emerge. It was like that with Dr. Strange. And then he talks about shade. And he said, shade. Oh, yes. I had a number of shade episodes ready to pencil. I remember going to Johnstown for this is where we talked about. I remember going to Johnstown for a summer vacation on on the seven or eight hour trip. I worked on continuing shade stories and books, ideas and stories rolled along the tracks. I can't claim that at every train stop I had a completed story for a book. But with shade, I did the color overlays on tracing paper for the panels and pages. But the problem was the coloring department was unwilling to follow my color schemes. Uh, in one book, I got the reverse of what I wanted. So one is always dealing with others who believe that they know best. Another example is the democratic collaboration. <laughs> a little political, you know, comment there. Yeah. <laughs> that he didn't like that. Basically. No, no. And then he talked about some character. I was talking about the names of his characters. And he says, yeah, character naming. Yes, all of those characters' names were mine. And I can't remember what I asked him. He said, but some editors didn't like the names. One editor said an odd name can have 
one unusual one, but also a very ordinary, common other one like Indiana Jones. You have one common name and one unusual one. It's a matter of thinking up names to fit the character. Some names can have a meaning like Rex Grain or Mr. A is against the grain of the usual moral thinking. That's where Rex Grain comes from. That's cool. Then Vic Sage said the question is victory through wisdom is where Vic Sage comes from. That's awesome. Yeah, he says, uh, yeah, if art is to be creative, every aspect of doing uh, a comic book story should involve creativity. I go for short names because of space for dialogue balloons and captions. I had uh, the Creeper as Jay Ryder uh, in my rough script. The comic uh, writer assigned made him Jay into Jack with a common conventional thinking. That is great. Yeah. That that's awesome. What what a great insight that was. Yeah. You know, he didn't fight or resist when I would ask him these things, you know. And maybe I don't know, maybe because I was a nephew, nephew, but I don't think so. Even when David Curry, you know, when he wrote Ditko Shrug, they were, you know, he would they had corresponded for 10 years. He asked them industry questions all the time. Yeah. You know, so he it wasn't like he wasn't willing to answer that. In all of the letters, when you especially when you see these really abrupt ones or curt ones, it was probably because they were just pushing, you know, you know, what something pushing a button, you know, that, Hey, draw me Spider-Man. You know, like you get a letter, draw me Spider-Man. It's like, my gosh, you know, you're the 8,000th person to ask me that. Okay. No period. Steve Ditko. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. But he would ask he if he answered, but that's why I kind of, I, I go back as like, I wish I could have asked them some of the questions that, sort of are burning on people's minds or that I think about now. Yeah. But it's great that you're the resource that you are already anyway. Yeah. True. So, yeah. And then it seemed like during the seventies, it was almost uh, a fanzine period where he was submitting a lot of stuff more in the fanzine world rather than mainstream comics. It seemed to explore more of his ideas and concepts. One of the things I wonder is how do you afford a studio in New York on that, are you aware of him doing other things too to make a living beyond? Was that it? I th- I think once he committed to what he was doing, that's what he did. That's what he did. And I don't know that he did anything else. And the only time that I know that he was doing something else was when he was going to art school. That he had he did have some sort of day job or some way to sustain and have some sort of money, which I don't know what he did. And I I've, I've never had a conversation with anybody who knew. But once he started in the business. He was all in. He committed. And that's where that he he knew that that's what I think. In fact, I think that really is what developed his attitude of, look, I don't do these little one off things. I need a long time job. You got to give me a commitment. So I'm not going to just draw you a picture and you're going to give me a hundred bucks. It's like that doesn't pay the bills. I need I need commitment. I need regular work. So that's what he was always after. I also like how he wrote in that letter. He implied more about thinking beyond the grain with Dr. Strange. Because that was revolutionary, his Doctor Strange. I mean, Spider-Man was too, but Doctor Strange, when I read that, his series of that, it opened my mind, honestly, to like comics before that and exploring metaphysics and dimensions. He was so innovative with that. So that's cool that he he threw that in to that letter to you there. Yeah. When I interviewed Jim Shooter, you know, I asked him about, you know, what, what was up with Steve Ditko's return to Marvel in like 78 or 79 or so. And he was saying that 
Steve Ditko played a little hard to get in the beginning, but he told him that you're a founding father, we'll always have something for you. And that when he took him up on the offer, that he would tell people like, hey, this is Steve Ditko. He would tell his secretary, look, we have to give him ultimate respect, make him feel as comfortable here as possible. And he always had something for him. And then it seemed like he also then continued to work for Shooter mm-hmm. over at Valiant Comics, even at, at Defiant after. Defiant. What, what was your impression of their working relationship? Because it seemed to go beyond Marvel there. Yeah, I, I met Jim down in San Diego at a comic convention. And we kind of chatted a little bit. But yeah, my sense was that, and that, you know, to me, that's just the, the reality of a relationship. Yeah. You know, it wasn't something that I, I think, you know, just take even correspondence. Somebody writes you a letter just like you don't know who this person is, but they're they're engaging. They go, you know, what are you working on now? You know, what's your next project? OK, so he responds and then you write back. And as the relationship evolves, you know, you're probably more willing to maybe say something or do something that you might not have done at sort of first contact. So I think that Jim he he knows the industry he knew who 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 was who you know he had that the proper respect for the people who did what they did early on and i think it only took a matter of time before my uncle saw that this guy's legit you know so yeah i'm i'm going to pursue him just uh, again along as long as the project aligned with his values you know his own values right because why he left you know the defiant, you know, I loved him on Dark Dominion. I wanted him, I wanted to see him, you know, continue that one, but he backed off because it just didn't click with his philosophy at the time, you know, which is why he ended up leaving that. He did the first bit there because he was, you know, had a commitment with, with Jim Shooter. So, but anyway, I think it was just Jim, Jim is a great guy. You know, I don't care what anybody else says. I, I like Jim Shooter. You know, I think he did right by my uncle. Uh, I think he did right by, you know, a lot of people in the industry. But I think it was just a matter that, that he he was willing to develop a relationship with my uncle, which why my uncle, again, looking for it just aligned with what my uncle wanted and and was interested in. I like Jim Shooter, too. And I I agree with that whole thing with your uncle working with him those years. It seemed like there was a mutual respect and loyalty there between the two. And maybe they spoke the same language to to an extent. I think you're right. Shooter did say something like, well, if that didn't you know, promote the ideal of a hero, he didn't generally want to be a part of it. And did he ever talk about anything else about Valiant or Defiant or his later time at Marvel beyond that Defiant anecdote you had mentioned? You know what? I that's well, Again, I got to go through my letters because that was the era that I actually started reading comics. I got into comics probably in the the early 90s. So I attended kind of the early 90s comic conventions and started to buy comics and started, I had my own reading list, you know, and the stuff from Triumphant, you know, Prime, you know, stuff from Adam Polina, you know, that that he worked on. I can't think of some of the names, but uh, Chromium Man, you know, that and and Defiant stuff. I, I was reading all of that. So I'm sure I probably wrote to him something about, you know, the Defiant, but I can't, I don't have anything right now that, I mean, that was a lot of years ago. So, and then you had mentioned that after death, he felt like that was it. There's no real afterlife. Like you got to use your time here now. 
when did he ever discuss, you know, how he felt about the death of, let's say, Wally Wood or the death of Jack Kirby or any of these people? No, you know, I don't I don't ever remember having any conversation about that at all. You know, what was his view of like just the Internet in general? Did he ever mention anything like that? Because I know he wrote letters, but he wasn't really an email kind of guy, I guess. Mm -hmm. No, I there were others that he had was writing letters with pretty regularly who would send him clippings and send him things that they would print out. He was really dialed into what was going on and all the happenings, but yeah. it wasn't necessarily, I mean, he would obviously he had a TV, you know, so, but it, no, he's not surfing the web. I mean, you go to the library and had access to whatever happened to be there. But I think most of his connection was with correspondence with others that they would print out things and send them, send him things. So they, they kept him really updated on what was going on. I gotcha. So it was more like just kind of being set in your ways and the way you communicate. And that's what you're comfortable with. It wasn't necessarily being against the internet as a concept or anything like that. No, no. I think it was just, he he's, was old school in that way. And, you know, you kind of think about his time, you know what I, I, I would bet I'd put money down that he woke up at the crack of dawn. He got dressed. He did his normal morning routine. He walked over to his studio. He went in his studio and he worked. And in the early days, I know he would work, you know, till the late night hours trying to just meet deadlines. Yeah. But even in his later years, I'll bet you he walked in that his studio in his normal hours and he worked uh, all day. And at the end of the day, he shut things down. He went home and he worked on his correspondence and he worked on research or something. And I bet you he had his routines and he probably just did that day after day after day. The Blake Bell book about his life for a while, that was like the only thing on Ditko's biography that was around. The timeline seemed to be intact throughout it. But at some point, there seemed to be some judgment by the author on Ditko and some of the decisions he, he made. You know, what, what's your impression of the way Steve Ditko felt about that book or books that, that try to do that? Well, I think, in fact, uh, there's, a, there's a quote that I kind of dug up that he had mentioned, because there's always this thing about privacy. You know, he was a private person. He didn't want this to come out, wanted this to come out. So he... On in 2007, he wrote to me and he said, Every person should value his privacy, and it is important to know and understand what is meant by privacy. Claims about most things regarding me have come not from me, but from others who believe they are qualified to speak for me or about me. Their speaking about me is supposed to prove that they know what they are talking about. So one of the things I think maybe with with Blake, because he did, you know, everybody knows the phrase that he says, that's a poison sandwich, you know, that book. So I think on that one is something, you know, in there that just turned his stomach a bit going, look, he is claiming to be a, uh, you know, a, a Ditko aficionado and, and able to speak for me when I didn't authorize him as my personal biographer, you know, so I think there was something, you know, it's almost like that, you know, that Cat Ironwood book that was kind of, she was doing all that research and stuff. And when it got to the point where it was really, 
invading other people's privacy to a degree. I, you know, calling my dad and all this stuff, it got to the point where he was like, no, I didn't sign up for that. This, I am not on board with that. So he, I think he would have been more amenable to something like, you know, what David Curry was doing, where he was right from the horse's mouth. He's just corresponding with them. But when it gets to the point where there's somebody who says, oh, I'm an expert, you know, that's why I try to read a lot of stuff that he wrote me and try to refer back to that because I'm not him. I don't, I'm not saying what he's, I only know what I know, but he didn't like the idea that others would try to kind of live off of some, some authority label when he didn't give it to anybody. So I think that's, that was kind of a, that really set him off. He didn't like that. In fact, I believe that his, his distaste for other people sort of intruding into his life via the family or friends really caused him to just go, okay, look, I'm going to protect my family. And he would tell people, I have no family. Uh, There is nobody. And I would just, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to read, get it. So the people are going to go hunt people down. We went to his studio to clean it out. And this, and the security guard, the guy at the front desk, you know, my dad comes up and says, yeah, we need to get into Steve Ditko's studio. I'm his brother. And the guy looks at him and says, you're not his brother. He didn't have any family. He told me that multiple times, hmm. you know, and then probably at the front desk, he's telling the guy, look, no, don't let anybody in here. I have no family. Don't, I don't care what they tell you, you know? So I think he was really trying to protect the family and saying, look, I don't have any family. Don't, don't go hunting. There's nothing, to, there's nothing to see there. So I, he did have that kind of sensitivity to the privacy, but only in a sense that people were trying to speak for him. When my dad said, you know, early on, when I, after he had passed away and I went out to Johnstown, my dad said, Hey, we should do a book, Steve Ditko, the man, we should tell our story of what we know, how he was now. I don't think he would necessarily have a philosophical problem with that because we're just saying what we know. We're not speculating. I'm just, I'm saying, look, he, he drew me gorillas as a kid, you know? So I'm not, I'm not making something up. It's, this is, (laughs) this is a reality. And we could speak to that reality of what we knew and what we had, you know, he did this, he said this, he showed me this, he drew me this, you know, he was this way. So I'm not kind of specul. I'm trying, I try not to speculate you know, in that way. And I don't think he would have had a problem with that. Now, if he was alive and we didn't do any of that stuff, obviously while he was alive, because he didn't want that. He didn't want to have that extra awareness, you know, put on him. We just think it's, it's honoring him, you know, right now that other people need to understand that. I was talking to Kevin Feige after the Spider-Man premiere down in Hollywood a couple of years ago. And we were just chatting and he said, because I said, we're going to be doing some things, you know, getting his uh, more people aware of who he was. And he said, you, he says, you have to do that. He said, because if you don't 10 years from now, it will, his life and who he was will only be a caricature of who he really was. And it's true. And, and I don't want that. I want his, I want people to actually know who he really was, not some caricature cartoon, you know, exploded blown up speculative, you know, kind of picture of who he was as a, as a crazy recluse, which is just absurd. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And in fact, when that Bleeding Cool article kind of came about and, you know, people are sharing it, you know, acting like it's a note of justice, which I thought- A travesty, yeah. Which I, I thought was the silliest thing. And I actually like made, you know, some very straightforward comment about how much I disagreed with it from the bottom of my soul. Because what they claimed is that, oh, you're, uh, the Ditko estate is printing uh, Ditko's uh, Mr. A, reprinting it against his wishes, you know, trying to put some spin, some negative spin on ultimately just trying to correct the record on who he was and make sure he's not forgotten and making sure that fandom doesn't just distort him into some caricature of a trench coat and a hat and a Spider-Man mask. And that's all it is. You know, I think you guys are doing really great work and no, I I'm with you, you know, a thousand percent, you know, in, in 1991, I wrote to him about some of his characters and regarding Mr. A, he said, he is one character from the past that I would like to see in the present and the future. So that was something that he wanted that character. That really was a, you know, a manifestation, a representation of, of what, of, of a strong belief that he had. And I intend, that's why we're doing that collected edition. That's why I'm doing, I am promoting Mr. A, you know, and I just think it needs to get on the right channels to, to send the message that just promote a message that he was, that there are some philosophical decisions that really are black and white and you just need to consider that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I am promoting it. He wanted to see him in the future. You mentioned you guys were kind of cleaning out his studio, the library. So was that basically when you were notified about his death, what you and your dad kind of went there and cleaned everything up? How was that? I flew out to Johnstown right after, about a week after he passed away. My younger brother, Patrick, and my dad had plans to just go into New York. And I was like, look, I'm going, you know, I am, I'm definitely there to help. So I flew out and we, I was out there for a while, a couple of weeks, probably in Johnstown. And we're trying to figure out, okay, like get the logistics of how do we, how do we get in there? And we had heard that because he had died in his apartment, that that was sealed by the police. And then they had also sealed his studio. So in order to get in there, we, we had, and there was, everything was sealed in the studio and the apartments. Nobody can get into any of that stuff. And we didn't have any kind of will. There was nothing legally legal that said that we could get into any of those places. So we started to do some research and my dad on the phone call for phone call for phone calls for phone call. Eventually uh, we find out that we can't get in there. Nobody's going to allow us to get in there. Nobody's getting in there until we have some kind of a legal paper that has whatever death certificate and, you know, authorization from the state that you could actually get in there. We, it took us probably a month or more to get that. So I ended up leaving, coming back to Los Angeles and then going back out sometime. I think it might've been in August or something the following month that we ended up then I rented a van and we all drove out to New York. Eventually, you know, started to just get into his studio and apartment and clean things out. But my dad made a comment that he just, he said that was, you know, putting it in perspective, there's my dad and me and my younger brother, Patrick, and just talk about a a bonding experience, you know, between a father and, you know, and two sons that he said it was probably one of the, 
you know, funnest, and if you could put it that way, experiences that he's ever had, because we spent, you know, almost a week in New York, just going back and forth from his studio to the apartment, you know, and going through everything and cleaning all the stuff out, packing up the van and eventually driving back. But yeah, it was surreal in, in many ways of what we kind of had to do in his apartment. And then also in the studio, he had a big studio. There was a lot of stuff in there. You know? Yeah. Was there anything surprising that you saw in there? You know what? For us, I think <laughs> I kind of flash back, you know, to my dad and, you know, me and my brother and my dad going in there. It was like, you know, opening up some crypt, you know, a vault that we have that you've never been in and you have no idea what's in it, you know, that's been buried in an Egyptian tomb you know, for thousands of years, you know, that's kind of the level of sort of excitement that you're <laughs> cracking this, you know, and first, you know, we finally, after about a half an hour of convincing the security guard and getting the building manager to come down to eventually escort us up there, you know, we turn the key in the Steve Ditko door 715 and you can't open the door. You're pushing and pushing the door and it's just packed with mail behind it, letters wow. and stuff. And, finally push it open and the, the, you know, they walk away and we just sort of walk into this first room and just piles of filing cabinets and stuff, and then walk into the main room. And it was like, wow. And it was so funny because all of us, we kind of, first, we sort of trying to take it all in. And then my dad goes right to, to his desk and where he's, where he would sit and draw. And my dad sits down there and it was like one thing after another, he would be sitting down and he'd go, look at this. And it's like, oh my gosh, you didn't even just one thing after another, people just, one of us just finding something. And then eventually obviously getting our heads wrapped around what were our task really is of how to you know clean this place out. But yeah, it was a, it was a real adventure that I'll never forget. Yeah. That sounds like fun. As far as finding something that was unexpected, yeah. everything was kind of unexpected in a way because none of us had ever been I think my, I don't know that my dad was even in that studio. My dad and my mom hooked up with him a couple of times in New York, but I don't know if they were in his studio. I had never been, my younger brother never been. So it was all just like, wow, you know, everything we looked at was something, a diamond, you know? Wow. How fun. Gosh. Yeah. That sounds like uh, it was less disappointing than Al Capone's vault with Geraldo, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It sounds a lot better. Yeah. Like, yeah. like uh, this one should have been televised. Yeah, right. Exactly. You'd mentioned this at the panel you were on with Matt Dunford was, did Steve Ditko ever get any money for the Spider-Man movies? Not that I'm aware of. I'm not sure what they did illegally, but, you know, with the Kirby estate, it took a lot eventually for them to say created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. But in the movies, it's pretty established early on. It says created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. But but it doesn't seem like any of us are aware of what occurred to get that byline up there. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, we don't know. They, you know, during that, I think during that period when those, those movies were coming out and all of those, the, that was being done. Yeah. I was writing back and forth with my uncle, but it wasn't something that I had, you know, attention on or was asking those questions. Yeah, that was all just something just happening over there, you know? And so now, is there any currently any legal relationship of any kind between Marvel 
Corporation and the Ditko estate as far as royalties or any of those things? My dad handles kind of the, the finance, financial side of things and has. So I do think that they that he gets a check from Marvel on like whatever it is, royalties or the commission on the comics. So, you know, it's one of those, I think he, I think they gets, he gets them from DC as well, but it's like, you know, five cents for a reprint here, you know, mm-hmm. seven cents on this one. And, you know, it adds up to a buck 25 or something. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, it's something like these, you know, there is something I'm pretty sure he does get some sort of a royalty type check on some of the reprints of things, but I don't really know what those numbers are. But and I think that's as far as as far as it goes, as far as the relationship. I remember early on, I was talking with Marvel trying to get I was kind of handling the legal side of, of, of the state. And I was talking with Marvel to try to get their existing contract. And they said they didn't have anything. So I didn't get, I, I, there was nothing that I could found, find or get from Marvel of where there was actual contract, you know, between them two. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned speaking with Kevin Fahey of Marvel Studios. Did he indicate that he was a fan of the comics himself? Is that your impression of him as far as where he comes from when he's making those movies? You know what? I don't know. Um, clearly, he knows who Steve Ditko is, and and he even he, what he was he asked me. He said, "What did you think about the tribute that I did?" You know, at the end of the Spider-Man movie, where they did a you know the signature of Steve Ditko yeah. and Stan Lee. You know, he said so. He he was kind of proud of that. You know, he said, "So what did you think of that tribute?" And I was like, "Eh," you know. I was like, and he said he really wanted to do something much more elaborate. But you didn't want to keep saying showing the same old, you know, six pictures that are out there. Uh, and he said he just he wanted to do something much more elaborate. He said he just didn't have the material. Yeah. So I think there was an intent to sort of do a much bigger, broader tribute. He just didn't have the content, which I gave him my card. And I was like, hey, in the future, when you want to do something, you know, I'll get you all the content you need. But he was, you know, to me, he was legitimately interested. And I'll tell you, when we were talking out there in front of Grauman Chinese Theater, I mean, he was he was engaged, you know, he was interested. Yeah. He, was, he was interested. He yeah. was he was, you know, happy to have met me and us to have this conversation when I muscled my way in past the handlers. <laughs> so then he had a long, you know, what seemed like publishing history with Robin Snyder with the comics and, you know, why he left Marvel and kind of his history. What was your impression of their working relationship? Was it kind of similar, do you think, to like him working with Jim Shooter that, okay, this guy's fair to me. I'm going to work with him. He understands what I'll work on and what I won't. It, was it more like something like that as a vehicle to continue working on his own terms? Oh, I, I think it absolutely was. And of course, then, you know, every just the longevity of it, you know, every year that would go by, every project they would do would just solidify, you know, that relationship. So I think, you know, as the years went by that, that, you know, true bond just grew and grew and grew because here's somebody sticking by your side, you know, and putting your material out the way you want that material to go out. So I think that just continued to solidify over the years. So 
I think it you probably started out as a business relationship because he had approached others prior to Robin, you know, to have that relationship. Uh, Ron France. So he he asked him, would he, you know, be, you know, his publisher? Uh, and, you know, Ron was like, I, you know, the material, I just don't see I can get the material out and, and make it viable as a business. But Robin had maybe some other things going on and enough diversity with other activity Robin's doing. So he took on, you know, my uncle's, you know, publishing. And then, you know, they signed a, I, I, I've seen the contract in 99 that they signed where they, you know, there was an agreement that he's leasing the material to Robin Snyder to be able to publish and just to profit and split the profits basically, you know, while he was alive. So that, I think that bond just kind of grew and grew. And then sort of what that really allowed my uncle to do and, and going back to his division of labor, you know, it allowed my uncle to just, you know, keep his nose to the grindstone and do the artwork and didn't have to worry about kind of getting it out there. You know, I know Darren Ford, Darren, you know, even approached him and others I've talked to have approached my uncle about publishing his work and, you know, about the quality and different comments. And he would always redirect them and say, look, that's not my area. You know, go talk to Robin. You know, Robin's the one that's putting that stuff out there. So that question is for Robin. That's not for me. I'm the artist. I'm the creator, creative, you know, in that side. So he, I think as the years went by, that relationship became very attractive to him because he was able to just, like I said, keep his nose to the grindstone and just keep cranking out what he wanted and didn't have to worry about distribution, you know, and printing and all that stuff. Do you feel as far as uh, what we've talked about, about your uncle, is there anything you feel like important about him that we may have missed today? I know it's it's hard to capture someone in a bottle like that. Well, I think one of the things that we're working on now is when my first went out to Johnstown and my dad and, and me and my brother, Patrick, were sitting down and my dad said, hey, we should do a book, Steve Ditko, the man. Yeah. And we should say, we should tell people who he was as a person just to kind of combat all those kind of rumors that were out there and innuendo and, you know, sub, all these other opinions. So I think we're, we have a draft version of that right now. I read it a couple of weeks ago. Bob Jashonik from Johnstown is actually writing it. He's kind of an accomplished author. So he's the one doing all the legwork. He did interviews and everything. So I think that is going to be an interesting book that will be coming out probably not going to have that done just because of the whole kind of COVID lag, probably out till 2020. So I think that that is one thing that will kind of give more insight into what we as a family want to get out regarding Steve Ditko. So we would want to try to get people to understand who he was as a person. You know, beyond that, I just want to get his name out there more. You know, I think his artwork is distribution is been, I don't want to say intentionally throttled back, but it hasn't been as broad as I think it should be for the caliber of, of artists that he was. So that's why we're doing the, the Mr. A stuff. I'm going to start doing more, more merchandise and, and only for just visibility. Look, I mean, to me, okay, I'll just say it. This is a money pit. I mean, I'm doing nothing but just, yeah. you know, money, money, money. I'm not, I'm not in this for the money, but I, I, I'm committed to doing this stuff. So we're, we're looking at, you know, and I'm talking to people about doing more, you know, animated cartoons and 
trying to just get his name out there connected to you know his, his creations. I think I would just say stay tuned because we are going to continually do stuff. It's like with this bottle work show. This this is the first sort of launch point of trying to get his name out there broader and what he has done. You know, then the Mr. A book and then the you know, the Steve Ditko, the man, you know, is a working title right now, that book out there, and then just getting people more access to who he was. You said that there were like maybe six photos of him out there, just out of curiosity, rough estimate, just from family gatherings. You guys probably have considerably more photos than that. Is that right? First time I went back to Johnstown, I went through our cabinet, just our personal one, the family one in Johnstown. And I found over 200 photos. Amazing. Yeah. And that's, there's, then my brother, Patrick, and my dad kind of went to the relatives and to others. And we haven't even, that, then we started finding the movies because every, my dad and everybody was all the eight millimeter, you know, videos. So we, so we have obviously home movies that he's in. Yeah. And the photos, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's going to be really interesting for some people to see this the antics that he would do all from a family perspective, you know, exactly. So that's gonna, that is going to be, I don't know how much of that stuff will really make it in the first book, but eventually it will all just leak out, you know, eventually over time. Well, I appreciate you sharing that one home video with the, the CBH channel. That was really nice of you. And I asked if you would share it with me and you were kind enough to say yes. I think it's a little annoying when people do that without asking permission. So, but I've always appreciated your kindness uh, to me and our developing relationship over the past couple of years and in the upcoming years. So Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining us today here at Comic Book Historians. That was my pleasure, and I'm sure this is just the start. The resentment against the perfect hero is a resentment against A is A, against the integration of truth and behavior, against the non-contradictory identity of a moral ideal, against reality and life's measuring ruler, a rational moral standard.